But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. The Pharisees and Herodians were unlikely allies. The Herodians supported the rule of King Herod, the established political order that the Roman Empire had set up a couple of generations ago. The Pharisees opposed the status quo and longed for a Israel free of Roman oppression. But even though these two groups had a strong political disagreement, they agreed with this. Jesus had to go. His presence was a threat. The other day, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and the people excited at the coming Son of David proclaimed, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A new political leader was in town. The rightful king of Israel had arrived. His preaching about the kingdom of God and his presence here in Jerusalem made him a threat to the established political order. But not only was Jesus a threat to the established political order, Jesus was a threat to the established religious order. The day after his triumphal entry, Jesus had entered into the temple and he saw the money changers and he drove them out, fashioning a whip because of the unjust economic trade that was happening within the temple in which the poor were forced to pay for a sacrificial animal at an unfair price. Jesus was upset and frustrated cleansing the temple of such injustices because, as he said, they had turned the house of God into a marketplace of thieves. And the religious leaders were responsible. So here they are together, the Herodians, the political conservatives, and the Pharisees, the political um, liberals, determined together to protect the status quo. They had come up with a scheme. The Pharisees sent a couple of their a few of their disciples together with the Herodians to trap Jesus. As they approach him there in the temple, they say to him, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Teacher, we know that you have the integrity to answer us honestly. We know that you are not the type to answer like a politician, like a snake, slithering your way out of the truth. We know that you are the kind of person that will say the hard thing in front of all these fine people. So tell us, teacher, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? 
and here the tax refers to the imperial tax. It was a tax levied against every adult Jew, even women and slaves. It was a tax not for Roman citizens, but for the subjugated, for the outcast, for the undocumented, for the outsiders, for the conquered, for the humiliated, for the oppressed. The imperial tax was a symbol of Jewish subjugation to the Roman Empire. At the same time, there were zealots in Jerusalem, revolutionaries who believed that Israel should fight off Roman oppression through violence by force. And they believed that it was wrong to pay the imperial tax because it was a symbol of oppression. But since this same imperial tax was a symbol of Roman rule, to refuse to pay it meant crucifixion. The Romans didn't play around with revolutionaries and um, uprisings. They liked to squash those things by force, and they liked to make an example of people. And what better method of execution than one with a public display and humiliation demonstrating the power of the Roman Empire? So Jesus here is caught in a dilemma. If he says it is wrong to pay the imperial tax, he risks death. If he says that Jews should pay the imperial tax, he loses credibility with the people who sympathize with the zealots' concerns. How is it that the Messiah, they would say, the king of Israel, would continue to accept the ongoing subjugation of his people to the Roman Empire? How is it that the king of Israel, who was come to bring justice in the kingdom of God, allow such a thing to continue, the continual humiliation of his people. If Jesus says that it's okay to pay the imperial tax, in the eyes of the people he risks becoming just another religious teacher, willing to live with the status quo instead of the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God. But Jesus knew their evil heart. He wasn't tricked by the flattery. He wasn't about to walk into a trap. So Jesus asked the religious leaders to see a coin. Now there were two kinds of coins. As you remember, there were money changers in the temple. There were the copper coins that the Romans allowed the Jews to use that had no image on them. And there was the silver denarius that had significantly more value. The Jews believed that the Roman money was tainted because the silver denarius had an image of Tiberius Caesar and proclaimed him to be a great high priest and the son of God. So the religious leaders grab a coin and hand it to Jesus. Jesus asks, whose image is that on the coin? And whose inscription? I imagine they looked down and saw the coin and realized what they had done. On one side of the coin had the Latin words Pontifus Maximus, which basically means great high priest. On the other coin, the inscription read Tiberius Caesar, son of God. And as they see the coin, they answer Jesus' question, whose image is that on the coin and whose inscription? Caesar's, they say. So right there, standing in the temple, 
a group of religious Jews hand Jesus an idolatrous coin. They had brought what they believed to be a symbol of a false religion into the house of God. They had handed Jesus a coin that represented power, status, importance, and oppression. And as Jesus looked at that coin, you have to understand what everybody else probably saw and understood clearly. The Pharisees had handed Jesus the wrong coin. They were not supposed to have this coin in the temple. If they were consistent with their own purity laws, if they had not been such hypocrites, they would have had the copper coin without the image, and that's the coin that they would have handed to Jesus. But here, they reveal their hypocrisy. They reveal that their religious commitment had been compromised. They reveal that they had made peace with the established socio-political religious order of the Roman Empire. They were okay to accept the civil religion of the day. They were okay with a nationalist religion that worships a sinful man as God. They were okay with a religion of power that subjugated undocumented peoples. They were okay with a religious order that equated God and country. They were okay with the Roman Empire's exploitative religious an economic system. This coin defiled the very temple that Jesus had just cleansed when he tossed out those money changers. He had cast out that demonic and exploitative religious economy that the chief priests and the Pharisees had set up. And so here they are, the liberals and conservatives together, bringing that civil religion back into the temple. So what does Jesus do? He looks at the coin and he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. If you want to know if you should pay the imperial tax, look at the coin. It's part of the world that's passing away. It's part of a fading kingdom. It's part of a corrupt religious order. It's a coin of a religious society that has a shelf life, an expiration date. God says to give Caesar back his civil religion and give God your allegiance. It's okay to pay taxes that support even an oppressive government. It's okay to find ways to live justly within a corrupt society. It's okay to give Caesar his due. But we need to keep that God and country religion out of the church. In a democratic society, it's okay to support a political candidate. It's okay to find ways to live within a society with grave injustices. It's okay, and I dare say even a good thing, to vote for positive change. But that civil religion, that God and country religion, that Jesus and John Wayne religion, that militaristic blood-demanding religion, that white Jesus slave-holding oppressive religion. God is bringing an end to that false religion. And this isn't a left versus right statement. This is a moral statement. 
This is a theological statement. God does not justify our partisan views. God does not want an American civil religion to capture our hearts, to capture our allegiance. That's why when our political preferences get in the way of Jesus and his kingdom, we need to give our allegiance back to God. When we subordinate our Christian values of justice and love and mercy to power and influence, we need to give our allegiance back to God. When we are willing to sacrifice people for the sake of the economy, we need to give our allegiance back to God. When we are willing to accept some progress, but make peace with injustice, refusing to hold our political leaders accountable to the common good, we need to give our allegiance back to God. Jesus' words here aren't easy. We have to embrace our difficult and messy situation. We have to make hard decisions. We have to find ways to support the common good in our society and in pursuing the common good in politics. As we know too well, history teaches us, we don't always get what we want. We have to choose. We have to make decisions. We have to foresee what these decisions might lead to and hope that the common good might prevail. But none of us can embrace a white nationalist, militaristic Jesus that advances the kingdom of God through violence. And I'm not just talking about violence against property. I'm talking about violence against people. People like Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. God is bringing an end to the violence in which countless soldiers are sacrificed for the sake of God and country. God is bringing an end to the military-industrial complex. God is bringing an end to the school-to-prison pipeline. God is bringing an end to the violence committed against undocumented peoples at the border. The kingdom of God does not advance through violence. And none of us gets to baptize that violence in the name of Jesus and put a Christian stamp on it. God has declared that that violence is passing away and that his kingdom is coming in which peace and mercy would reign. And because of God's work in the world in bringing about his kingdom, he has called us to resist evil, to strive for justice, to uphold peace, to pursue mercy and reconciliation. And I know it's hard because politicians like to meddle in religion. They love to tell us about their faith. They love to mess with our values and our morals. They love to pull on our heartstrings all while peddling morals and values of a nationalistic religion that draws us away from Jesus. We need to resist that. We need to put that false religion in perspective. America is not the kingdom of God, and politicians are not priests. 
The kingdom of God is made up of a people of every tribe and nation transcending our current political order. As Christians, we need to be able to distinguish our Christianity from the political powers of the day. We need to remember that the political order of the day is passing away. We need to remember that God's kingdom is eternal. We need to remember that presidents die, democracies crumble, economies crash, dynasties end, but Jesus reigns forever. We need to distinguish our faith from the partisan options that are fighting for our allegiance. We need to distinguish the cup of salvation from the poisonous concoction of white nationalism, militarism, consumerism, and the indifference of, to the cries of the oppressed. We need to distinguish Christ as the head of the church from heads of state. We need to distinguish the religion of Jesus from the religion of power that has our society drunk with indifference and publicly belligerent. The religion of Jesus draws us to faith in God, hope in a coming kingdom, and love for our neighbors in society, especially those who are most vulnerable. The religion of Jesus opposes the constant bloodthirst of a society whose military budget is greater than the next eight countries combined. The religion of Jesus opposes all ideologies that dehumanize, humiliate, and degrade people made in the image of God. We need to distinguish ideologies that embrace abusive power for the so-called greater good from the Christianity of the early church that embraces love for the common good. Civil religion is poison, and the church today has become intoxicated with a lethal dose of hate masquerading as faithfulness to God. Jesus came to save us from false religion. Jesus came to win us to a path of love. Jesus came to announce a kingdom in which love and mercy would reign, where peace and justice would meet. Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself and to invite us into a life of love and hope and faith and mercy and grace and kindness and peace. Jesus came to save us from the fading kingdoms of this world. And now, beloved, because of what God is doing in the world, because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, because God has brought you near, we can live like God actually cares about the world now. We could live like the presence of God and the kingdom of heaven is arri arriving with us now. We can live and begin to show mercy and grace now, to fight for justice now, to defend the weak now and to hope and anticipate the fullness of that coming kingdom in which this false religion would pass away along with the corrupt political powers of the day. When Jesus died on that cross, he identified with us in our sins. 
and our weakness. So that in his resurrection, he might represent us before the Father, bringing us into a life of love and joy and peace. And now, God has called you his children. God loves you and he desires your heart, your allegiance, and your faithfulness. In these upcoming days, we're going to have a lot of time to practice distinguishing the civil religions of the day, the civil religions, I want to say, the civil religions on the left and the right, all civil religions, from the Christianity of Jesus. And it's my prayer that our hearts would be liberated as we turn to God in faith. He knows you have difficult decisions ahead. He knows that we're not going to get all that we want now. He knows that you are struggling to live in a world with an unstable society. But God has invited you into his loving presence. Jesus reigns. Though this world is passing away, we can hope in that coming kingdom. God will forgive our sins as we strive to do what we believe best reflects the values and morals consistent with his love. Amen.